Hello and welcome to Dry Heat Sports episode number 41. My name is Matt Brown, joined as always by my bud in the Bay Area, Joe Fortenball, producer Robert here in Las Vegas as well. Episode number 41, Joe, Wes Unseld, Dirk Nowitzki, and Tom Seaver. So, I mean, two pretty strong ones right there in Dirk Nowitzki and Tom Seaver. I mean, Dirk, 21.4 points per game over his 20-year career, sixth all-time on the point list. Then he got Seaver who won 311 games, had a career 2.86 ERA. So, I mean, that is, uh, that's pretty strong for both of these guys. It's going to be a tough, I'm going to let you decide because I mean, maybe this just comes down to whether you lean basketball or baseball here. Um, I'll say this. It feels as if 300 wins in baseball doesn't get an, as much recognition as it, as it should. I know baseball purists understand that, but I think a lot of like casual fans will understand the ability to rush for 2000 yards in a season. Like you might hear that number and be like, damn, that's a big year. 300 wins. It's like, oh yeah, that's a nice career. 300 wins. I mean, that's 20 wins a year for 15 consecutive seasons. 20 wins a year is remarkable. Playing baseball at the professional level for 15 years is remarkable. To combine those two is a stat that I feel doesn't get as much love as it should. So I'm well, going to lean to Seaver here, but Nowitzki's had an unbelievable career. What, he's only one of six guys to go over 30,000 points? Yeah, and one one of the things that I think that you basically hit on right here is uh, to expound on that is that really at the end of the day, I don't know, I'm not going to say we'll never see another 300 win pitcher, but the way that they treat pitchers now and with the way that rotations go really deep and the way that they've invested so much money in starting pitching to where if a guy even has so much as a tender arm, they skip his start and things like that. I mean, you it's going to be very, very, very tough for someone to get to 300 wins again. Exactly. Especially from this new crop, maybe someone that's out there now that has a few years to go, but that's, I know that's not what you were aiming for. Yeah. Essentially the idea of a guy coming in and remember in this day and age, if you even feel a twinge in your elbow, you're getting Tommy John and you're shut down for a year and a half. Yeah. So you're exactly right with the way they're managing the game these days. That might be a, a, a metric and a milestone that is few and far between moving forward. I have a feeling that throughout the course of the 40s here, we're not going to have the wide range of athlete numbers to rely upon as we did in the 39 numbers before that. Does it just feel as if the 40s, outside of maybe Ronnie Lott coming up here in the future, are going to be a bit underrepresented? Yeah, I mean, one thing I guess we can say about Dirk is he basically revolutionized the way big men are used in the NBA. He was like the first guy guy to come in that was like seven foot that had handles that could shoot threes and shot threes at a very good rate and was basically uh that guy that you know we see a lot of these I mean it's it's commonplace now I mean like you see these seven footers just shooting threes all the time now but that just wasn't a thing in the NBA really before Dirk and now I mean basically if you come in and you're seven foot and you don't shoot threes like a Ben Simmons for example people are like what's wrong with this guy like, why, you know, like, why can't he shoot threes? Like, what's going on? I love it how Porzingis is the unicorn when in reality it was Dirk all along. Like, he yeah. was the unicorn paving the way for the rest of these seven footers to come out there with their long range game. So, uh, kudos to you, Dirk. And uh, you are now, you know, you should be thankful that you are here on uh, this podcast being mentioned as much as you are on this lousy uh, Mavericks team you play for. Absolutely. And um, I'm sure our listeners were watching, uh, judging by the ratings. They probably were. Alabama faced Georgia in the national championship game. Another national championship game for the history books here. An amazingly entertaining game after what a lot of people were kind of poo-pooing as a down first half. Nick Saban, being the GOAT that he is, goes in at halftime 
and chooses to switch quarterbacks to a true freshman quarterback who had not taken any real meaningful snaps since October and had not taken any snaps since uh, November, middle of November when they played Mercer. So that was his last real game action in there. And Nick Saban had enough, you know, again, what can we say about this guy as we continue to just basically his career just continues to just defy all odds here, but has the guts to come out, put in the true freshman, sparks the comeback here. Joe, I mean, I saw you were on Twitter. You were tweeting about it. Basically, every sports fan I know, all of my friends were on text lists and everything. Uh, people were talking about how this game wasn't going to do well because it was two SEC teams and it wasn't a real national championship. And, of course, the numbers come out this morning and, and they they up 9% from last year and everything like that. I mean, what what a game, right? There are so many different elements to pop in on here. Number one, the overarching element is that the college football playoff is working. This is three years in a row. We have gotten an ultra competitive championship game. The NBA finals last year was the Warriors blowing out the Cavaliers. The Super Bowl has been relatively solid the last few years. We had a great comeback from the Patriots that went to overtime, but college football is delivering year in and year out. Now, maybe the semifinals aren't great, but this year I think was the best year for the college football playoff yet. Number one, you had that great semifinal between Georgia and Oklahoma. Number two, you got a great championship game that went to overtime, which, you know, as well as the Rose Bowl. And then number three, the four seed won. And this is now, what, the second time the four seed is won because Ohio State did it as well? Like, these teams are justifying their place. And we love to bash committees. The committee for March Madness, the committee for college football, any sort of committee we love to take a shot at because we know it's the elite 1% suits that are making these decisions. The committee for college football's playoff gets it right every single year. Like, these guys deserve a hell of a lot more credit than they're getting. As for the game itself, it was a classic. The balls on Saban to make a quarterback switch at halftime to a true freshman is unbelievable um curse the alabama kicker for screwing my under <laughs> like like come on man hit the chippy and let us all get paid it's still a classic game but all the way around how many how about how many true freshmen were making plays in that game Najee harris the bama running backs from antioch high school right here in the bay area i i think that kid's a heisman trophy winner moving which, forward which which basically goes to just prove what alabama has done and and we talked about georgia as well how their success is basically going to continue on their recruiting class Currently, right now, the number one class in the country. Alabama continues to recruit ridiculously. I mean, you talk about Najee, and then you've got the quarterback in Tua that's from Hawaii. I mean, like you've got they are recruiting literally all over the place to bring in the very best players for, from all over the country. And look, you know, I mean, you look at this, and you got a guy in Jalen Hurts who uh, it was a little bit of an awkward interview at the end of the game, but he handled it well. I thought, you know, props to him for the way that he handled things. Um, you have a guy that basically played the entire season, and when it came down to it, the coach pulled him and put in somebody else, you know, and that's got to be, you know, something that you think about here over the next couple of weeks because, Joe, I don't know what Nick Saban is thinking, but you have to figure with the way that this game played out and you see the limitations in Jalen Hurts that, I mean, Hurts is probably not getting his job back. I mean, this is one of those things. No, where, it's over. He can go yeah. JT Barrett and he can move to wide receiver or he can transfer. He's done. He had yeah. his opportunity. The guy, he just can't make plays in the passing game. He's too laissez-faire. And every now and again, when he scrambles, it's nice. But imagine Bama with an actual quarterback, like yeah. not a game manager, a guy who can blow the top off these opposing defenses with his arm. I mean, Tagovailoa, did you see the, did you see the laser? I was going to say, did you see the laser on that kid? I mean, yeah, he needs to, and he'll get that. He's a true freshman. He'll, he'll get a little bit of touch, but every pass last night was nearly, was basically just a missile, but that kid has a cannon for an arm. 
the one in overtime I thought was overthrown. Like he got sacked and then they immediately snapped that ball and he let that go. And I was like, damn, this is going to be third and long caught touchdown game over. And I'm like, wait a minute. How did the wide receiver get underneath that? I thought he threw that out the back of the end zone. I mean, all the way around last night, it was a remarkable performance. There was so much NFL talent out there too. It was such a physical affair. It wasn't marred by lousy officiating. I mean, these two teams, we wanted to believe, or at least I, along with others, wanted to believe that the SEC was maybe coming back down to earth. Well, sure, after its top two teams, it's coming back down to earth. But its top two teams are the two best teams in the country. So the SEC is still reigning supreme, in my opinion. Yeah, it's uh, it's really crazy. I mean, you have Alabama, who if if Saban ever had a year where he could have made up made excuses, they had ten guys go in the draft last year. Seven of those guys went in the top two rounds of the draft. He lost. Seven top two rounders and and was able to go out there and win the national championship the next season. If there was ever a year where Saban could have gotten a pass for them, maybe having a little bit of a down year, it would have been this year. And instead, he just continues to take what he gets. And like you mentioned, tons of freshmen on the field last night for him. And Let me ask you something. Yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Keep going. And, no, I was just going to say, and he had no qualms about playing these guys in very, very important spots. It's insane. There, there are so many coaches. You and I come on here, and we're going to do it throughout this podcast, and we complain and we nitpick game management situations, time management situations, and we talk to ourselves about how, how can these coaches who make so much money and have been around the sport for so long fail in these spots? Well, a lot of them understand what they should do, but they don't because they don't want to take the risk of doing something slightly different, something that's not mainstream, and being cursed in the papers for it. Case in point. In the Kansas City Tennessee game, you have got to let Derrick Henry run for that touchdown at the end of the game. But if you do that, it looks very strange. So they tackle him to a ground, and Tennessee runs the clock out, and that's it. Andy Reid loses again. Saban has the security and he has the confidence that he can do whatever he wants, and we really can't question him because he's got six national titles and five since he's been at Bama. He's been in the college football playoff every year of its existence. So he can roll the dice on this switch to quarterback at halftime and whether it works or doesn't, it's not as if we can come out and go nuts on him for, for his decision. If it works, he's praised like he is today. If it doesn't work, it's like, well, Hertz didn't play that well. At least he took a chance. I mean, it's, it's, what would you pay this guy? Let me ask you this. What is he worth to a school? Like if you were Texas right now, would you pay him $20 million a year? Well, I mean, listen, if you believe Bruce Arians who came out today in an interview with Colin Cowherd, he said that he feels like Saban covets the New York Giants job, which out of oh, nowhere, God, I had really, yeah, I had heard nothing about this whatsoever. Then you have Bruce Arians come out in an interview and say that he thinks Saban covets the New York Giants job, which I find very, very hard to believe. But I mean, who am I to say? Uh, who am I to doubt Bruce Arians? I suppose. But you look at this, Joe. I mean, what would the Giants pay him? I mean, seriously, like what? What would the Giants pay him? You probably couldn't make a bigger splash hire than them luring Saban away from Alabama. Okay, so it would be a little bit, it'd be a, a bit different going pro than staying in college because college is such a proven commodity. Like if you're Texas and he wants 20 million a year, you can't say no, you have to pay no, him it. The sure. pros, I could understand where there'd be a little bit of a reservation, but how do you not give him the John Gruden contract after John Gruden just got 10 years, 100 million? Like you can't offer Nick Saban less because I think if you took everybody in America and put them in a room and said, who would you rather have? Gruden coming out of the booth or Saban coming from college, most people would have to say, uh, yeah, I'd rather have Saban. 
Like I'm yeah. seeing Saban dominate at his level. Gruden's been out of the game for nine years. And if you really go back through his numbers, they're not as impressive as people think, but that's a story for another segment. Within it's, this so, podcast. it's so funny that we're, that we're, whenever we're talking about these team coming back, winning the national championship, when it was 13 to nothing at halftime, people were posting screenshots of the, of like Alabama message boards. Yeah, where I saw that. <laughs> one of, one of the threads, literally, this I can't make this up, guys. And if you want to go back on my Twitter, you can look at it. One of the threads, no joke, was another wasted season. Was the title of the was the title of the thread? And it's like another wasted season. You've made the freaking national championship game after losing ten players to the draft last year. Like, what kind of insanity? This is when like winning like too much is a bad thing. It seems like that. That's going to make a case for the most spoiled fan base on earth. But this is also why I love college football. Like I love college football because the level of insanity amongst <laughs> fan bases like that is unprecedented. Like where else would you see this? Two years ago, they won the national title. Last year, they lose in the final seconds, literally the final second to Clemson in the national title game. This year, they're in the national title game in a year they probably shouldn't have been there. And you've got someone on a message board going, man, we're wasting yet another year. Like, and, how is that wasted? And the game isn't even over. It was halftime of the game. Like, it was the <laughs> game. Nothing. Two-score oh, game gosh. in college football, which college football games take half an evening to get through. It was absolutely <laughs> amazing. We talk about all the NFL talent that was on the field, Joe. One name that you are not going to probably, unless you follow high school recruiting very, very closely, is the name Justin Fields. Now, if you're wondering who Justin Fields is, Justin Fields is the number two overall player in high school. He's the number one overall quarterback in high school. And you're like, Matt, why are you bringing up the name Justin Fields? Well, Justin Fields is a commit to the University of Georgia, Joe. And this is a very curious thing for me. The number two overall player in the country, the number one quarterback in the country, choosing to go to Georgia where he knows there is basically zero chance of him seeing the field any time in the next two years. Um, kind of a curious decision here. I mean, I guess he could redshirt, and so he would come in and definitely sit as a redshirt freshman and then maybe have the opportunity to take over then as you know, as a as a redshirt sophomore, but we're talking three years into a, a guy's career at that point. Um, pretty interesting decision for me. If you're a kid, if you're the number one quarterback in the country, Joe, are you going to a spot where you know for sure you're not going to see the field for three years? No, I'm not. I would be pulling off of the, I'd be pulling out of this immediately. First of all, doesn't Georgia already have another quarterback? The kid who was supposed to start over from before the year started? The Eason kid apparently Nick is Eason, going to, that's it, yeah. right? Yeah, he, the Eason kid is apparently going to transfer to Washington. Is the is that's the, a big jump? So he'll yes. take over for Browning. Yeah, so the the kid is going to transfer to Washington, and like you said, he'll just sit out a year and no big deal because he wouldn't play anyway, and then he would take over once Browning leaves. I mean, if you if you want to go to Georgia now, you can redshirt your first year, right? So you're not going to burn any eligibility, and then Fromm plays his second year, and then you could hope that you burn your freshman year of eligibility while Fromm plays his final season as a junior and then goes pro. You get all that experience playing behind him, all that expertise, and then you step in, and you've got three years to play college football. But why would you want to start a situation where you're already chopping one of your years plus a red shirt out from under you right. Like right off the top? You've already limited yourself to three seasons. So you've got a developmental season. What if there's another injury in there? What if there's a year that doesn't go well? What if the what coach if they, leaves? What if they sign like the new hot kid off yeah. the street or something like that? You know, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the other thing. Very interesting to me uh, was, was wondering when I saw that, how, 
he comes to that decision. And of course, before we move off of college, of course, here in Vegas, they waste no time. They have already released the odds for the national championship of next year. We'll just go over the top 10 right here. Alabama plus 250, Clemson plus 600, Ohio State plus 800, Georgia plus 800. Michigan plus 1,000 really jumped off the page at me as odd. Michigan was garbage this year. I don't know if they have like some sort of magical pixie dust they're going to sprinkle over that team. Penn State plus 1,200, Oklahoma plus 1,800, Texas plus 2,500, Miami plus 2,500, and Wisconsin plus 2,500, Joe. You have Alabama at plus 250. I mean, it's not even worth it. Uh, it they're like you the know, Warriors. They're like the yeah. Golden State Warriors. It's, it's, yeah, it's not even worth betting them. You don't want to have that money locked up all season when you're only going to make two and a half times your money. So you're never going to bet that. So, I mean, you look down here, Clemson at 600, Ohio State and Georgia both at 800. I think Georgia at 800 is a fairly decent bet. I want to see the contingency plan from the running backs and Roquan Smith. They're going to lose the best linebacker in the country to the draft. And then Sony Michelle and Nick Chubb are obviously going to be going pro. So who are going to be the skill players that step in? But based on the recruiting class that's coming in, what Kirby Smart's done in just two years and the fact that Jake Fromm is coming back and now has this one year under his belt, I would definitely lean to Georgia in this situation. Who on the SEC East side of the equation is going to challenge them? Right. Who's going to make it difficult for them to get to the title game? And you're a Penn Tennessee. State, and, and you're a Penn State guy. Plus twelve hundred. Is that is that short? Is that about right? About right? Or what do you think? I'd have to look at the schedule, but I mean, again, you're going to have to play Harbaugh's Wolverines. You're going to have to play the Ohio State Buckeyes. The Buckeye game will be at home. The Michigan game will be on the road. I don't know how they'll set it up. You'll have Iowa at home this year if they're on the schedule again. The quarterback's back, but Saquon Barkley was your best player, and he's gone. So right now at twelve to one, just off the top of my head, it's eh. I mean, knowing Alabama probably has one of the four spots locked up and we just have to assume that every year. <laughs> right. um, I, I, I don't know if 12 to one is going to going to get me that excited because that's a quarterback return that doesn't get me as jazzed up as say from McSorley's a nice player, but he's short. And if you get your arms up, you can knock down a lot of his passes. Iowa laid out that blueprint back in like October when those two got together at Kinnick Field. You, you said the same thing that I was saying last night to people that I was talking with was basically you're playing for one of three spots almost, it seems yeah. like, because because it looks like Alabama is going to have a spot at least for the next couple of years locked up. And I mean, I understand anything can happen. Injuries happen, things like that. But, you know, if they were able to avoid any sort of catastrophic injury or thing like that, it seems like this team is is not slowing down anytime soon. And basically the same could be said for Georgia as well. Um, all right. So NFL playoffs here. If you guys watched, I mean, listen, there were a couple of good games or a couple of, Oh, Hey, I almost forgot. Let me throw this in real quick. Uh, the national title game, Levi stadium, Santa Clara next year. Let's, let's go. Let's podcast on the road. Come up to the Bay. You got a place to stay. Let's go to the game. I'm in. Let's do this. Like that is, you think they'll credential this podcast. They will by then. I mean, we're going to be like by then. <laughs> by then sure. Yeah. Uh, right now. Maybe not by yeah, then by, without question. Yeah. By, by then. No, no doubt about it. Uh, the Titans went to Arrowhead. Um, Joe and I were both uh, pretty confident the chiefs were going to take care of business. And if you tuned into the game at halftime, you probably tuned right back out of the game because you thought the game was taken care of. It was 21 to I three. I actually did that. I took a nap in the second <laughs> half. I'm not kidding. <laughs> so perfect it, perfect example right here um yeah so we're looking at 21 to 3 everything seems perfectly fine looks like business is going just like we thought it was going to this Tennessee Titans team is trash right well little did we know that the Kansas City Chiefs could continue to fuck up everything that looks to be good on this team over and over and over again Kareem Hunt as we bitched about on this podcast during their four game losing streak they went away from Kareem Hunt and quit using him. And what did they do? They lose four games in a row. 
Then, at, in a game where they were up 21-3 to at halftime and had already lost their best receiver in Travis Kelsey, they chose to rush Kareem Hunt in the second half five times. At home. At home with a 21-3 to lead at halftime with no Travis Kelsey. Joe, listen, I, I, it, to me, I understand. Andy Reid, he's been around a long time, and I do understand that you know he's made his bone. He did go 10-6. and six. They did go 6-2 and two at home. Yada, 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 yada. He's never going to get it done. He makes boneheaded freaking decisions year after year after year. Kareem Hunt with 11 total carries in this game. After them coming back and really rallying after that four-game losing streak, after they fed him the ball over and over again, is a fireable offense, in my opinion. Andy Reid is now the only NFL coach in history to blow more than one 17-point leads in the playoffs. He has now blown two 17-point leads in the playoff. What happened to him in Indianapolis, I think it was three, four years ago, when they had like that 30-point lead, the Colts came all the way back with Andrew Luck in that game. But what was really alarming was that Reed built up that huge lead, and early in the second half, he's still out there throwing the ball. Like, he's he's a disciple of the West Coast system. His coaching tree, everyone always talks about who's underneath him, will go above him. You go all the way above, there are some serious roots in the West Coast system. The West Coast system is very basic in its premise that you throw early to build the lead so that you can run late. Well, for some reason, Reed was still out there throwing and stopping the clock. And then the second the Colts got to within a score, Reed started running the ball. And it was like, it's too late. You got to press it down the field. He did the same thing in this game. You're up like 21 to three. It's done. You've got Alex Smith. He's a game manager. Like he's got, let him manage the game. Literally let him manage the game. And somehow you let Tennessee come out of the locker room, march right down the field on you. You give them life. And then you did nothing about it. Darrell Revis is an embarrassment. That that play at the end of the game where he just quit, that was a guy who absolutely just robbed the Chiefs of cash this year. That was embarrassment, number one. Number two, apparently there's a rumor that um, Reed, when he turned the play calling over to Matt Nagy, who took the job as the head coach of the Bears, because Nagy was prepping for his interview with the Bears, Reed took the play calling back for this game to do him a favor. So he was a bit more focused on his Bear game than he was this or his Bear interview than he was this. And and I mean, I get that. That's a nice thing for a mentor to do. But maybe Andy Reed's a bit too nice because once again, that dude is sitting at home in the playoffs when he very well should be on his way to a marquee city for the divisional round. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And, it, you know, we keep mentioning this Travis Kelsey thing and this. This Chiefs offense is a shell of itself whenever Travis Kelsey isn't on the field, yet you have targets going to guys by the likes of Demarcus Robinson and Albert Wilson and Demetrius Harris and Orson Charles. And these are the people who are getting targets in this game when all the while Kareem Hunt is sitting on the sideline getting 11 carries for the entire game. Tyreek Hill at that point becomes your best receiver. Tyreek Hill's five foot nine. He's a friggin' he's a he's a gadget player. He's not a number one receiver. When you lost Kelsey, for come hell or high water, you should have rode Kareem Hunt. They didn't do it. Marcus Mariota throws a touchdown pass to himself which is like something the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my whole entire life. And uh, they rode Derrick Henry. And listen, I will say this. Derrick Henry played very, very well. They gave him 23 carries. He averaged over six yards a carry. Uh, played a hell of a game for for this team. But still should not have won. Tennessee does not excite me. And, and we'll preview uh, real, short, real quickly uh, some of these games after we get through uh, reviewing right here. Joe, moving on to this next game. And this is just one of the... This is just one of the craziest things to me. Uh, Falcons go out to L.A. 
and, and just basically totally annihilate the Rams here. And I, the reason I say it's crazy was the fact that I didn't, I didn't think it was crazy that the Falcons could win. I just thought if the Falcons were going to win, they were going to win in a shootout. I had no idea the Rams were going to get in a position where they could only score 13 points on this Falcons team. We're talking about a Rams team, the highest scoring team in the NFL this season. Looked like they were able to roll basically in any way they wanted to, whether it be Todd Gurley or Jared Goff or whatever it might be. End up only scoring 13 points. End up only scoring three points in the entire second half. The Falcons win 23-13. to 13. The... Initial narrative you heard from people that scratched the surface on trying to find something interesting to say this past weekend was that take a look at what happened to the teams that rested in week 17. Kansas City rested their starters, got beat by Tennessee. The Rams rested their starters, got beat by Atlanta. And Steve Young has long been a proponent of playing in week 17, no matter what, to stay in rhythm. I get that. Like that that rationale heading into the game, if you're saying that, I, I get that. I, and I love Steve Young, so I'm not going to try to say he's wrong. But everyone who's jumping on that narrative now after the fact, the Chiefs were up 21-3. to yeah. It had nothing to do with rest. They came right out of the gates and buried the Titans. And, and also, a- just to jump in, and sure. also under that narrative, then should we be worried about the Patriots this week? Should right. we be worried about, you know, because they took a week off as well. I mean, and don't you know, we go over this every year, the Andy Reid bye week effect. Andy Reid's great with an extra week of rest. Now he lost to the Giants this year, but generally he's fantastic. So usually a bye week is supposed to be a great thing, but in this scenario, it's not. It makes no sense for the Rams. They looked rusty, but I don't think it was rust. I think it was the fact that the stage was too big. I think they got tight, and this isn't baseball where you've got a five-game divisional league series or a seven-game league championship series or the NBA finals or the NHL finals. You got 60 minutes, and you got to come out of the gates blazing, and the Rams look tight. That's it. The Falcons look like a team who had been to the playoffs before, who understood the situation, who played within themselves. The Rams look like a team that was a bit overwhelmed. You saw McVay on the sidelines looking a little bit more stressed out than he normally does. Now, the the future holds very bright things to this team, but they just came into that game. They just weren't ready. They looked youthful and they got exposed. Yeah, it's one of those things. If you just look, if someone just sat the statistics in front of you, you would probably think that the Rams won the game. Matt Ryan threw for 218 yards. Garrett, Jared Goff threw for 259. Devontae Freeman ran for 66. Todd Gurley went for 101. You know Julio's, what's criminal? How many times did Gurley carry the ball? Yeah, that's true. 14 It's like, carries. what, 14? You got to yeah. be up near 20 with that guy. He's got yeah. to be your horse. Come on, a- man. A- absolutely. Julio Jones, 9 for 94. Robert Woods, 9 for 142. I mean, like, you look at you look at the statistics, and you would think that, that the Rams won the game instead get beat by two touchdowns. Very, very interesting there. But like you said, this Rams team, very bright future here. Uh, Jared Goff has proven that he is not the bust everyone was trying to make him out to be. That field mark- was a bit of a mess. Before you move on, that yeah. field was a mess in that game. Like they got, I know they're only there for a couple more years, but you got to get that figured out. You can't have guys slipping all over the place. Yeah, they were. They brought in apparently like new turf after the bowl game or something like that or whatever it was. I don't know. But yeah, there was guys. I mean, several times Matt Ryan looked like he was about to do the splits because he was friggin', uh, you know, the slipping on the turf every time he was dropping back. Um, kind of a bummer of a game, the Bills and Jags, 10-3 uh, to 3 for the Jaguars. This kind of went how you and I described it. We thought this would be kind of a sloppy, ugly-ish type of game. It certainly was a sloppy, ugly-ish type of game. And then, unfortunately, right in crunch time, Tyrod Taylor gets a concussion right when they needed him the most. They had to turn to Nathan Peterman, and we all know how that's going to turn out. Again, 10-3 to 3 Jaguars. Joe, 
we're going to say this because they're going to lose. Uh, they're going to lose this week. And what we're going to say is we're going to look back and we are going to say this Jaguars defense is one of the best defenses we've seen since the friggin' '85 Bears. And with Blake Bortles under center, who went by the way threw for 87 yards in this game, 87 yards in this game against the Bills. Um, it's just going to be totally wasted, and they have come out management. Now, hopefully they change their mind. Hopefully, for our sake, they've changed their mind. But saying that Blake Bortles is our quarterback and is going to be our quarterback moving forward, hopefully they come to their senses. I think I've got more to break down on this game. than I have more hot takes for this game than anything yeah. else. Um, let's start with this. I love it how Romo and Nance on the broadcast were like, Bortles is having a great game. The way he's running with his legs, chunk yardage. It was like, this isn't Tommy Frazier at the University of Nebraska back in the early 90s, bro. You got to be able to throw the ball in the NFL. There was no wind. They kept talking about like all this wind, like it was Soldier Field. Blake Bortles should never have more rushing yards than passing yards. And that's what happened in this game. That's that's impossible. It was such a clown show. And he's on the sidelines laughing it up like he's Baker Mayfield running up these huge numbers. He did nothing. Like he did very little. I should say he made enough plays to help his team get by Buffalo. But Buffalo went into that game with a negative point differential, a serious negative point differential. When you go to Pittsburgh this week, Bortles is a guy that's going to look to his defense to bail him out because I don't know if he's capable of making enough plays. More on that in a bit. Um, My wife is from Western New York, so this was a big game for us. First playoff game for her since 99. She was in junior high back then. And I had a Labatt Blue Light flown out for the occasion, which you can only get in Canada and Buffalo. So we had that out. We had her Buffalo chicken dip. We had the 11-month-old all dressed up. Like, this was a big game. And there was a place, and I don't know if you've ever been there because it's in Vegas, but we used to go there to watch Bill's games. It's called Moondoggies, and it also has the restaurant Naked City Pizza. Yeah. Down near the Strip, not far from the Stratosphere. And Naked City is run by this guy, Chris, who's from Buffalo. The pizza's outstanding. The wings are outstanding. Lo and behold, like an hour before kickoff, I see pictures that OJ Simpson is hanging out down there in a LaShawn McCoy jersey, and everyone's taking pictures with this dude. Like, he's full-on celebrity now, man. Does anyone shun him? Dude, it's It's absurd. His lawyer here is like this loudmouth dude that's like, like runs his mouth to everybody. Like, the, the people who do... The people who do take shots at him and things on Twitter, like this, this attorney will like come firing back at them on Twitter, and it's it's just, I I can't wrap my brain around it. I literally can't wrap my brain. Have around you seen it. him at all yet? Because this you guy live murdered in the same people. Part of town that you did. That I you could did. walk to his house. He lives in Red Rock Country Club. Like I could walk to his freaking <laughs> house from where I live. Like this guy murdered people. Like it, people are like, yeah, let's take a selfie with like the. Why? Because he ran the football well? I mean, like, what? Like, seriously. You know what it is? It's not because he ran the football well. It's because last year he was glorified in those two major productions. ESPN did the big thing on OJ, and then FX did the show with Cuba Gooding Jr. Everybody watched that stuff, and, and enough time has passed where it's like, forget about the murders and the tragedy that took place, the disgusting acts and the horrifying crimes that were committed. Like, Hey, man, it's OJ. Let me get a picture because it's going to look awesome on my Instagram and it's going to get a lot of likes. Let me get it up on Facebook. So OJ is just rolling around like a celebrity. So let's let's pretend that you even let's pretend that you have tricked your mind into thinking that this guy didn't actually kill those people. He was a he was a serial spouse abuser. I mean, like that was like that is that's documented. Like that is actually on record as he's still a piece of shit. Yeah, like like any way you look at it, he's still a garbage human being. That like you're that basically you're going up and running up and trying to get selfies with this guy. Here's the worst part, and I talked about this on air up here, and I'll talk about it here. Um, If I'm at Naked City, I'm probably trying to get a selfie with him. 
Like, I'm probably trying to get a picture. I would love to be like, no, no, I'm not going up there to talk to OJ. No, I'm disgusted by what he stands for. But the reality would be like, yo, Juice, I loved you in Naked Gun. Um, you know, yeah, keep on trucking, man. If you can compartmentalize, you know, I mean, like, you just compartmentalize. Yeah. Like, like, you're like, the only OJ I know is 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 freaking Naked Gun OJ. Like, I don't know him as a football player. That was before my time. I don't really know him as the celebrity because my I didn't live in Beverly Hills. My history of OJ starts with the uh, white Bronco chase. And everything yeah. from there forward only really involved a minor burglary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was so really just a misunderstanding. It, it, it's all it comes <laughs> down to. So, yeah, very, very, very interesting. Even uh, now, though, we're making jokes about it. Like this is this is where we are as a society. I know, I know. we're OJ's like not, back. I know, like we're not making Unabomber jokes. Like we're not making whatever. Like <laughs> like you know what I'm saying. Like we're not bra- making these like Ted Bundy jokes or anything. But like it's okay. Like we make uh, we make Orenthal James Simpson friggin' oh Lord Lord have mercy. Anywho, this game there's not a lot to talk about, Joe. I mean, really, at the end of the day. This Jacksonville team is going to get fucking trounced. It's going to be horrible. Um, that that's my opinion of this. So Sean McCoy gutted it out. Actually, had a pretty good game, all things considered. Um, but I mean, look, dude, Blake Bortles can't move the ball. They can't. They, the offensive line it doesn't run block well enough for Leonard Fournette to find any holes. I mean, th- this this seems like just a bloodbath to me. I'm interested to see how Antonio Brown's going to look coming off this calf injury. And Jacksonville did go up there during the regular season and truck Pittsburgh. That was the worst game of Ben Roethlisberger's career. Maybe the defense rides enough of a wave because that defense has got to be yoked coming off that three-point shutout performance at the Bills. I mean, they barely let them do anything in that situation. I'd have a feeling the defense is going to make enough plays to possibly have Jacksonville in it. But again, the same logic applies. If you're Pittsburgh, stack the box to slow down Fournette and make Bortles beat you. Yep. And if Bortles can beat you, well, then you probably were going to struggle anyway. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if he if he plays like Blake Bortles, you're going to win. I don't think the Steelers need to worry about too much either. Play smart with the football. Play um, play field position. You know, sometimes punts will be safe. Eventually, Bortles will make the big mistake in this game. Yeah, and, and, and the, the, the one way to beat that team obviously is on the ground and that is where they are very strong with LaShawn McCoy and the premier game of the week, the the Panthers headed to new Orleans to take on the saints, just an absolute barn burner that I did not see coming. But well, this is why Sean Payton is the genius. And you and I are sitting here talking about it into a microphone all week long. I was jumping up and down about how this was game was going to be low scoring. It was going to be the under and instead, what does he do? And he comes out and decides to throw the ball all over the place. And Drew Brees has one of the vintage Drew Brees performances, throws for 376 yards in the game. And the Saints hold on for a 31 to 26 victory here. Joe, this Saints team is dangerous. They're scary. If I was in the playoffs right now, I would not want to be playing this team, especially when you consider, like we talked about last week, they can flip a switch. You've had this Ingram Camara tandem in the backfield that has been annihilating people. And then all of a sudden you realize like, ah, they're plugging the holes pretty good here. Oh, let's just, let's just rely on Drew Brees again. And what does he do? He goes and throws for 376 yards, pinpoint accuracy, unbelievable, 115.2 quarterback rating. It was, it was like, it was literally watching Drew Brees in his absolute prime. Yeah. Carolina played well in this game. They played well. We take a lot of shots at Newton, but Newton had a pretty solid game. He was. He was on, on like one of these, one of those games where like we talked about, like the only way we thought that the Panthers might be able to to win this game is if Cam had one of those games, Cam had one of those games and they still lost, which lets you know how a lot of credit to the Saints team. Absolutely. New Orleans just happened to make one more play in that game. This was the game that was built up to be the best of the weekend. It delivered on that front Um, all the way around. You just tip your hats to everybody. I think Ted Ginn 
continues to amaze. I mean, this guy's career, he came out as the number, what, nine overall pick. So the thought process is that he probably should have had a better career than he's had. But when you look back on the grand scheme of things, Gins continued to produce year in, year out, where he might not get the credit he deserves, but only because he was overdrafted based on what he produced early on, because he was never a true number one. And if you're going to be a top 10 pick, you need to be a true number one wide receiver. I think Michael Thomas for the New Orleans Saints is a vastly underrated wide receiver. Fantasy owners get it. But more people should be talking about it. I was going to say like the, the general public uh, and even NFL fans, but like just the general guys, like you're talking about the people that don't like bet or the people that don't play fantasy or whatever, that don't realize kind of the value of this guy. He's never mentioned in the same breath as any of the elite receivers in the league. And then you look, you know, you look at his numbers and you go, why is this guy not mentioned as one of the elite receivers in the league. I mean, you look at a season, he had 104 catches for 1,245 yards this year, and he's never talked about at all, ever. Never, never. And that'll continue to happen because he's not a wide receiver with a big mouth. You never hear him talking. You don't really see him dancing. He plays with Drew Brees. And right now, the focal point for New Orleans is this two-headed beast they have in the backfield, Alvin Kamara and Mark Ingram. I will say this. I don't see him going to Minnesota and winning this weekend. The Vikings are just going to be welcoming them right into a bear trap. It's going to be extraordinarily loud. And I think New Orleans lost another offensive lineman. They're a banged up football team right now. That's not a good spot against a team like Minnesota. Now, if you were going to Philadelphia, I might think differently. Offensively, you could probably make enough plays. Defensively, you're going up against Nick Foles. There's opportunity there. But this matchup with Minnesota going into the Dome, it is going to be very physical, very loud. Xavier Rhodes and the matchup with Michael Thomas when the opportunity presents itself. Uh, if Case Keenum manages the game the way he's been managing and makes the big play to Stephon Diggs or Adam Thielen when he gets those opportunities, I think Minnesota is going to handle their business right here. The Saints season is going to end just like it started, in my opinion. Yeah, you look at this Panthers team. Uh, they go ahead and, and fire the offensive coordinator and fire their quarterback coach and um you know, listen, I, I, it makes you wonder where they kind of go from here. They weren't really able to figure out how to use Christian McCaffrey in the rush game really at all. Uh, he became more of a receiver. I uh, did go over 100 yards in this game as a receiver. Um, but it's it's one of those things. They're going to have to figure out some things uh, for sure in the offseason. Your number one wide receiver can't be Devin Funches. I mean, this is a guy that was a tight end in college that they've turned into a, a receiver. You, you know, you got to get this guy a true number one. You got to figure something out here. But uh, certainly Carolina is not dead either, Joe. They're certainly a team to look for. They're going to uh, move. The they've got to move McCaffrey to wide receiver full time. Yeah. Just, just give him a couple plays in the backfield, but address the running back position. Get yourself a real life running back. Move McCaffrey out. You still have some years left of Greg Olson and get yourself a number one. Something I would love to know the story behind the Kelvin Benjamin trade. Because for a team that needs wide receivers to have traded that guy away in the middle of the season, something's lurking beneath the surface there that we don't know about. Credit Carolina for keeping that quiet. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, the four games this week, we touched on a couple of them already. Uh, Atlanta heads to Philadelphia here, Joe. Atlanta is a two and a half to three point favorite in this one. Got to be honest. I, listen, I know we have not really been very high on the Falcons team all year long, but this just seems like a bad spot for Philadelphia. I mean, it's just a... It, it, without with without Carson Wentz, it's just not the same team. And Atlanta, weirdly enough, I guess not weirdly enough. I mean, it is a team that has experience in this. It's catching their stride right at the right time here. Finally, starting to use what? Who'd have thought using Julio Jones in the red zone would have been a good idea? They finally started doing that over the last couple of weeks. Um, I, to me, I lean Atlanta here, especially considering I can get this at under a field goal. 
See, I'm going the other way. If I get the field goal with Philadelphia, I think I'm going to take the Eagles in this spot. Atlanta, we just saw them beat the Rams and we saw them beat Carolina late in the year. And now there's a little bit of buzz. Like Atlanta looks like one of those teams that's catching fire at the right time. Meanwhile, the last we saw Philadelphia, they weren't playing anyone in the final week of the season really against Dallas. And then the week before that, they looked lousy against the Raiders because it was so windy and cold. They couldn't throw the ball. So the thought process on Foles is that he's a really below average quarterback. Who's not going to be able to make enough plays. I got a feeling that Jim Schwartz has had enough time to look at this Atlanta defense to get an idea of what they're about. I mean, I mean, these dudes have been on the road. Think of the travel. You had to go on the short week all the way to Los Angeles. Then you come back to prep. Now you're going up to Philly to play outdoors in the cold weather. I wouldn't be surprised if Philly finds a way to avoid major mistakes, like catastrophic mistakes in the first half. I think the Eagles win this game. I don't think Foles is going to lead them to the promised land by any stretch. I do think they can win this game. It'll be interesting. I don't know how they score is basically my thing here because they're just, you know, they have no run game to speak of whatsoever. Yeah, you got Alshon Jeffrey. Yeah, you got Nelson Aguilar, but it, getting them the ball, I think, is going to be the tricky part of it. Tennessee at New England, no need to even talk about this. This is going to be a bludgeoning. New England favored by 13, 13 and a half, 14 even at some places. And Joe, you're not getting any of a discount. Uh, it, coming off of this big Tennessee win here over the weekend whatsoever. I mean, they still want you to lay basically two touchdowns here for the new England Patriots. And I think it's probably well-deserved. I, uh, <laughs> this time I don't want to watch this game. If I watch yeah. it, I'm watching it to watch Brady. I don't want to watch Tennessee again. I mean, I, I, they were supposed to be gone by now and I could move yeah. on with my playoff viewing experience in full HD new England surround sound. That New England gets Rex Burkhead back. They get Chris Hogan back this week. I mean, like, there's just uh, what in the world? I, Here's I what this you, is. This is that we saw this game play out. We saw this game play out a few years ago when Tim Tebow and the Broncos upset the Steelers in the wild card round and everyone went nuts. And then Tebow and the Broncos went to New England and Brady kicked the shit out of them. And they were like 14 point underdogs and they got annihilated. Brady was up 14, nothing in like a blink of an eye in that game. That's what you're going to see here. Not to that extent in terms of the final score, which I think was like a 30 point massacre, but you're probably going to see new England bring this one home 31, 10, maybe 38, 17, something of that nature. I'd probably lay the points here. I'm not taking the points with Tennessee. That's for sure. Oh no, no way in the world. Jacksonville heading to Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, seven and a half point. Favorites in this one. This is going to be a Matt Brown teaser special because I, I I think that Jacksonville uh, defense is good enough to keep this kind of like, you know, within the realm of possibility to where they'll hang around and hang around. But the offense is just not good enough. And and like you said, the formula was laid out this past week. I mean, they, it was the Bills did exactly right. They did exactly what they should have. They said, you are not going to let Leonard Fournette beat us. We are going to make this garbage quarterback of yours try and beat us. And sands like some crazy scrambles from Blake Bortles. The Bills might have won that game. I mean, like in, in all honesty, uh, Pittsburgh at seven and a half to me seems like a teaser special. I don't see how Jacksonville scores enough points to win the game. I think we've got another underplay. Uh, at hand here as explosive as Pittsburgh is. I think that might uh, bump the total up. Some people might roll in this. What is it now? It's like low forties, right? 41. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to have some fans that probably look at this and go, damn, I mean, as good as Jacksonville's defense is the Steelers could score points and they might bet it up a little bit come game time. But if you're Pittsburgh, you're going to want to establish your ground game. Le'Veon Bell. You're not going to want to make any mistake, too many mistakes here. I mean, there's no reason to get too risky against Blake Bortles. Yeah. Really just walk him into the trap. Let him make the mistakes to set your team up with the short field and then capitalize on that. If you come out throwing the ball all over the lot 
and Roethlisberger throws an early pick, he's going to start thinking about that game from back in the middle of the season when he threw five interceptions. There's no reason for any of that. Your defense is going to be able to play well enough to limit Bortles early. So I'm thinking under 41 here because Jacksonville's defense will show up. Pittsburgh should be able to play some defense. It's going to be tough to believe this thing gets to 24-20, right? And, and you said uh, and you said you think Minnesota wins. However, they are favored by over a field goal in this one. Um, do you think it's by more than a field goal? Four points pretty much across the board for them. See that this is this is the most interesting uh, line of the week, because based on how the Saints have played this year and what we just saw against Carolina, I think this would be that rare instance where the public likes the dog. Like the public's yeah. going to think Case Keenum and they're going to see Drew Brees and they're going to go, hey, you know, I, I I play underdogs. I like underdogs. This is a great underdog spot Four points, man. The fact that it's not sitting there is three. Like Minnesota gets the home field advantage for three, maybe three in the hook. That's actually up there as four. That makes me think they're trying to bait you into taking the Saints. I lean to Minnesota in that spot. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting, like you mentioned, with it being four, which is pretty kind of a deadish number, right? Like it's kind of one of those dead numbers. It almost makes you wonder if there is some sort of a little bit of teaser-ish protection going on right there to where they don't want to give New Orleans a field goal in that game, maybe uh, something like that. But pretty interesting. Um, I don't know if the game's really to me are as interesting this week as they were this past week. I mean, I'll certainly be interested in the Saints and, and Vikings. That game seems like it's going to be really good. And, you know, listen, Atlanta, Philadelphia, but look, we we both think that we both think that the Jacksonville, Pittsburgh, and Tennessee, New England games could both be snooze fest. So we'll see how that all plays out there. Um, real quickly, we have to touch on this just because everyone's talking about it and we need to give our two cents because that's what we do. Uh, you know, LeVar Ball comes out and basically um it talks about how Luke Walton isn't a good coach and, you know, is talking uh, in public. Anytime anyone will stip, stick a microphone in front of his face, obviously his son plays for Luke Walton. And now you have this situation where people are wondering, you know, what the Lakers should do, if anything. Joe, I'm kind of of the mindset here that if I'm Magic Johnson, because Magic Johnson has clout in basketball for everything that he did. He is now, a, a you know, an executive within that organization and things like that. I think if I'm Magic Johnson, I probably do come out at this point and say, you know what, LeVar Ball, you've never done anything. You're not good for anything. You can shut your mouth or you can basically uh, stay out of our building. And I, I think it's probably about time that that goes ahead and happens. Listen, Luke Walton can't do that. He's joked about it, but he can't do that. No one's going to take the buses seriously if they do that. But I'll tell you, the, Irvin Magic Johnson still holds some clout in the NBA circles and within, you know, fandom and everything like that. I think, or I think Magic Johnson could do that. Here's what Magic Johnson should do. Get in a time machine and go back to the NBA draft and never and realize <laughs> like none of this is a surprise. What no. made you think that this wouldn't occur? Like they, they're probably having some internal discussions like, all right, you know, we got to figure out how to handle this guy. You knew all along this was going to be a problem. Everybody knew it. You he he let rest. it be known. He let yeah. it be known. You were drafting the dad as well. And you took the risk and like now people are looking around trying to figure out what to do. And here's another thing. This is my beef with this. I, I love Steve Kerr being covering the Warriors on a daily basis. Love the team. And I love the man. I love everything he stands for. And he, Rick Carlisle, Stan Van Gundy, everyone that's come out and defended Luke Walton here and basically said, stop putting a mic in this guy's face. Stop giving him the platform. It's dumbing down society. I don't disagree with any of that. But let's remember something here. This guy generates page views and page views and interest generate money for ESPN. ESPN spent over a billion dollars per year 
on the NBA basketball package, the package that Steve Kerr and Rick Carlisle and these guys put on on a regular basis. So number one, you're trying to tell the people who pay you what to do. That's always going to be a bit of a dicey situation. But number two, last year, ESPN needed you to play your starters in marquee games. They had that big Spurs Warriors showdown where both coaches sat everyone because they thought they were so slick and they were going to stick it to the league. So the league went ahead and changed the rules. But if I'm ESPN, I'm like, let me see if I get this right. I'm going to give you about $1.2 billion a year to broadcast your games when I need you to play your starters in these marquee Saturday night matchups so I can try to recoup some of my costs. You're going to rest guys as part of your stance towards the NBA's rules so they make a change. So I'm going to take a bath on that. And then when I find a guy who's able to generate interest where I can make some money off it, you're going to tell me to stop covering him as well. Like, at what point does ESPN, who takes so much fire from everybody, just stand up or at least behind the scenes, tell these guys, look, uh, I'd love to help you out. But remember last year when you sat all your starters in that Saturday night game and screwed me on all that money we spent for you? Stay out of my business. Stay out of my business. It sucks because I hate the dumbing down of America that occurs with all this LeVar ball coverage. But this is one spot where the coaches, even though the message is right. It's not your place, man. It really isn't. Like they're trying to make money. You got to understand that they gave you 1.2 billion a year. Yeah. Business, business is business, and you and I are in media, and we understand that. Like, listen, at the end of the day, you have to do what basically, like, you know, you said page views or whether it's just views or listens or whatever in the hell it might be. Like, you have to do what the public wants. I don't think that ESPN is doing anything wrong. What I think the blame should be placed on is this Laker organization. You have to come out. And you have to set this groundwork. I would have, if I was Magic Johnson, and I would do it publicly, I would say LeVar Ball can shut up or we will ban him for, pull a Dolan on him. Be like, yeah, I'll ban him from the building. Like he's not going to be, he's not going to be able to set foot in Staples Center if he doesn't shut his friggin' mouth, you know? And yeah, he might yap a little bit more or something like that. But when he can't come to games anymore and he can't be seen courtside and he can't be all these little things like that. He might change his tune a little bit because he likes that vanity, Joe. He loves that. He loves to see and be seen. That's what fe- that's what's fueling all this right now. That's what gets to him. That's his lifeblood. And when that's taken away, then that yeah, you can sit down and continue to do interviews from the you know living room of your Lithuania house or whatever that you're over there doing. But that's not the same as walking in to L.A. and the glitz and the glamour and seeing Jack Nicholson down the line and all the things like that. Like that's what fuels this guy. And if you take that away from him. Maybe you can get at least a little bit to change, but you know, I, I the like you said at the, at the top of this, the only thing the only thing the Lakers can really do to change the entire deal would have been to not draft him in the first place. And you and I even mentioned this, you know, we were talking about this before the draft that when you draft this guy, you were drafting the dad, and that's the way that this was going to go. And if you expected anything differently, then you're a moron. Well said. I, I really don't have anything to add no. to that. I mean, this is the Lakers' bed. You made it. You're going to lie in it. Figure it out, man. Figure it out. So lastly, um, ESPN released an article. We continue talking about ESPN, but ESPN released an article that actually got leaked the night before about the New England Patriots. By now, you probably have read it. Well, maybe you didn't read it because it was very, very long, but you've at least heard the cliff notes about everything that went on and basically saying that Tom Brady and Bill Belichick and uh, Robert Kraft are you know, butting heads and this could be the last year of the dynasty, yada, yada, yada. Joe, when I read the article and I got done reading it and I got done and, and basically the first thing that came to mind for me was, so basically you're telling me that three rich, powerful, successful dudes have giant egos. Newsflash. I mean, like, <laughs> seriously, like, like really breaking news that three guys that are rich and powerful and have had tons of success have giant egos. Like this was, I, 
I don't know. Everyone was making this out to be this gigantic, like crazy, you know, and yeah, it was a little bit of a peek behind the curtain. Like there were a little bit of a couple of interesting nuggets within the whole thing. But really to me, all it was, was yeah, you've got a guy who's a billionaire who built this giant business or whatever. He's certainly going to have an ego. You've got this guy who basically is, has, has fronted the, if you want to call Belichick, the front man, like has fronted this dynasty in the NFL that really we've never seen before. So yeah, he's going to have an ego. And then you got Tom Brady, who's arguably the, the greatest quarterback of all time. So certainly he's going to have an ego as well. I don't know. It didn't blow me away as much as everyone was trying to make it out to be this crazy, crazy, like, wow, look at this article thing. I'm surprised at the reaction to this in that for all the, if you don't like the Patriots, you hate the Patriots, right? Like if you're not Peralt and a Patriot fan yeah. who uh, like typical fanboy just, and I love you Peralt, if you're listening to this by yeah. any chance, but I, I love these fanboys who anytime someone publishes something negative about your team, it's a hatchet job. Yeah. Everyone's trying to attack you and take away um, from all the hard work you put in. They're trying to cut you down. Like, look, it's not you versus stop trying to sell me that you versus the world garbage. All right. You're the New England Patriots. Act like it. That's number one. Number two, what happened here is really quite fascinating. People should be basking in this. If you hate New England, you should be basking in the fact that there are cracks in the facade. Belichick was planning for his legacy and that of the Patriots. And that was Jimmy Garoppolo. A, he was going to prove to the world that he could win without Brady. And B, when he left the Patriots, he was going to leave him in good shape at the quarterback position with Jimmy G. Brady saw this coming and went behind his back up to Bob Kraft and said, get rid of Jimmy Garoppolo because I don't want to end up like Joe Montana. I've done enough with my career that I want to go out when I want with who I want. So Bob Kraft sat there and said, I side with Brady. They have a lot of business interests together. I believe they work on some of the concessions that Gillette, like Brady's got a cut of a lot of the action that goes on there. And Kraft sided with his boy and then realized a little over a month later that he made a huge mistake because Jimmy Garoppolo is bawling out of his mind in San Francisco. And that's what happened. And it's not a surprise. It might come as a surprise that it's in New England because they seem so buttoned up. But this is how it plays out. Massive egos with everyone wanting to protect their legacy. Yeah, you look at this and that's the thing. You 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 just hit on it right there. And I was uh, commenting on this to people back and forth on the Twitter machine. They had to quit because like you said, like you start talking to these like Boston sports fans and then it's just you, you, like can't, you can't talk to Peralta about this. You can't talk to any Boston. It doesn't even matter. It's it's like this weird thing in the water up there when they're born or whatever it is. It's just it, that makes them grow up to be absolutely insane whenever they get older. But you 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 look at this and the reason that everybody was making this such a big deal was just because it was Bill Belichick and Tom Brady who, for the most part, don't go out on the microphone and say outlandish, crazy things and don't do crazy things and have never been in trouble and don't like the aren't controversial. You know, the biggest controversy around these guys was whether or not they were Trump fans. You know, what I'm like that's like the biggest controversy basically around these guys in the 17 years that we've been like really watching over these guys. So it was the fact that. You didn't expect that, wow, behind the scenes, of course behind the scenes these guys have egos and yell and scream at each other and call each other ass. Of course they do. I mean, like, what did you think happens? Like, do you think that Bill Belichick literally 24 hours a day, seven days a week, walks around talking like this? Do you think that's just how he, of course not. Do you no. think Tom Brady, who is the most accomplished quarterback in NFL history, has hundreds of millions in the bank and is married <laughs> to the supermodel of all supermodels, is really just a humble guy who cares yeah. about the kids? Of course not. Get out of here. I mean, yeah, no, I mean, seriously, like it was so crazy to me that people were like, oh, this is this is going down. Can you believe this? And I was like, I got done reading the article and I was like, yes, I can. Actually, I <laughs> I totally I totally absolutely can. 
believe in this. All right, before we get out of here, Joe, um, let's talk about your cryptocurrency holdings because I mean, like, you, certainly by now you've gotten into the cryptocurrency. Considering like everybody's just making millions and like driving Lambos now. I mean, now, like, our, our good friend Dave Farris said it so well a few weeks ago when he was like, you know, I kind of looked into it and. When like the dumbest people I know are coming up to me and talking to me about Bitcoin, I realize eh, I may have missed the boat on this one. That's kind of how I feel. He said that it's like, yeah, I mean, I should probably be involved in this thing, but I don't know. Should I? I mean, you've been listen, following this more than I have. L- listen, listen, I have I've only dabbled, right? Like I've I, I've only dabbled. I was never consider myself any sort of I would uh, using a recreational ex- Bitcoiner. Yeah, yeah. Like, like using the word expert would be just so absurd for me to even say like I don't even I wouldn't even say I'm knowledgeable, basically. And which is always good whenever you're like, you know, investing your money in things like to not be knowledgeable of, of right. what exactly what's going on. Hey, this is not financial advice segment here, guys. Like, don't do do as no, don't do as I say or do as I do. Don't do either as as, as I do or say here. But basically, yeah, I've dabbled in the shit, and like, so I bought one of these things that like I read about, like that they were going to be basically, you know, hooking up with some of these big companies or something. I bought it at twenty two cents, and it went up to three dollars and thirty cents. I sold it at three dollars and fifteen cents. And so like, I am now an accomplished crypto trader. So, 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 so now I'm like a, I'm an accomplished crypto trader. I feel like now that I've got this thing just completely down. And, uh, now I have three different, I have three different accounts at three different exchanges. I'm just swinging things all over the place. Like KuCoin is for, for life, you know, like, like, it's just like, like KuCoin is where it needs to be. Binance, all these, you know, all these things like that. You, you so know. this was basically a segment that was built in to show how good you are at cryptocurrency. No, I don't no, have notes on this and I have no, no opinion on this. No, 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 no. I, I <laughs> honestly, the reason I would just, I laugh about it is because, you know, my friends it, are out there and they're basically like, should I, you know, be getting into this and things like that? And I'm just kind of like, you know, look, if you're, if you have money that you're willing to understand that one day you could wake up and it would be like zero, that it you're would be like, gamble. Like, yeah, like if, if you would, if you're willing to like say, hey, there are very few things that you can buy that literally will could increase five to 10 X in a course of a week. Like that just doesn't happen very often. Right. So if you want to gamble in these things, because they can also go down five to 10 times, you know, five to 10 X in a week as well. So if you have that risk tolerance, you know, it's interesting. I'll put it that way. It's interesting. The more I read about it, the more utility I start to see in some of these things. But I still never think that they're actually going to be an actual currency. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I believe more in the utility of That's the a stuff. speculation market. So you never know how it's going to play out, but you dabble and you've already won. So no matter what, you got a yeah. hell of a story to tell the grandkids one day. Yeah. Like whenever people Let me ask tell you like, back when, when Ethereum yeah. was uh, Listen, two cents, when, uh, when, when, when ripple is like a million dollars a share and I sold it for $3 and 15 cents, like I'll be looking back and like, I'll be telling my kids like, yeah, I would be worth uh, five hundred million dollars right now, but instead I made fifteen hundred bucks on Ripple. So uh, like the you know. like the asshole third partner of Apple who was <laughs> yeah. like who sold out for like fourteen hundred bucks and it would have been <laughs> worth like two trillion today. It's just absurd. Basically, we're saying don't do it unless you like are are okay with burning money, which you know Joe and I are on occasion. We're okay. Yeah, with without it. question. I've been doing it yeah. all year. Yeah, I had the under it. Monday night in the national title game. <laughs> I'd rather have some of that Bitcoin right now. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys, thanks for uh, hanging around with us here, episode number 41 the tom siever slash dirk Nowitzki episode that we had never really decided which one of it was but uh, we'll go with that for producer robert here in las vegas and joe in the bay area i am matt brown we will see you guys next week
Oh, that was and that was a rapid. Yeah, uh, let's you, see. you didn't quick. You didn't f around. You didn't make us like sweat. Like that was good. I like that. I appreciate that.